and I am an alcoholic. And uh, it's been a great weekend so far. I enjoyed so much last night, Marty and and uh, Higgy's speech, or talk, pitch, whatever you call it down here. Uh, it's a little different than up there. I had passed uh, yesterday how the history of this word kitchen came along, because we don't use that in Canada at all. And and I heard the story of how that started, and it, it all makes sense to me now, but uh, it was um, uh, up there, we just call them our sponsees. Someone said to me, oh, you call them your babies, and I said, no, not really. Some people do, I guess, but I don't. They're, my, they're just my sponsees. And uh, hopefully, you know, I'm able to, to give them a bit of guidance as people gave me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I ha I've had a, a desire, I have always wanted to do this, and I told Lou last night, I said, I'm going to do it here. And, and I was going to start off the whole thing by just saying, my name's Loretta Lynn, and I'm a coal miner's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> because I grew up in the coal mines in, in uh, southern Alberta, and, and we were uh, from a uh, family of, of severe poverty, poverty, as was Loretta Lynn. And, you know, when she came out with that song, In My Sick Mind, I thought that she was singing it just for me. And uh, it, it was a wonderful feeling because, uh, um, you know, it, I, I could never, of course, sing like her, but um, so much of our life is, is so much the same. And um, I, I mentioned to Lou last night that um, I, I think that's how I'll start off. And then I thought, gee, I better not. I'm not too sure who, you know, how this can go over. But, uh, and, and I'll, I'll tell you just how sick I still am. Uh, for Mother's Day, uh, a friend of ours in, that Lou sponsors in the program, and, and we've had quite a lot to do with their family, gave, us, gave me a little Jack Russell puppy. For, for Mother's Day, and and it, it, they're they're a, quite a poor family, you know, and and of all the people that um, would want to give something as valuable as a Russell dog to me, um, it it was it really touched my heart. And uh, since we've been away, in the morning our dog has a routine. It, it's it's on our bed all night, of course. It sleeps on top of the covers. About quarter to five in the morning, it wakes up, it comes and it licks my teeth, goes over and licks Lou's teeth, and then crawls down in the covers, under the covers between us. And since we've been here, I have to wake up every morning and lick Lou's teeth to make him feel like he's at home. So, it, it, you know, that, that's pretty sick. <laughs> It's a little female puppy too, so. Uh, but but we we've had a just a super time here. Um, Liz picked us up at the airport. Liz and and John, and she uh, had a new girl with her that was just uh, 14 days sober, and and uh, it was wonderful to see. I know there's probably people in this room that that are pretty new sober, and um, if you are, stay. Life will only get better. That is a guarantee. I was told out when I arrived here that if you stay in that, your life will get better. 
and and I thought it couldn't, uh, as all alcoholics think. You know, I mean, nobody's had it quite as bad as we have, and and uh, nobody, this didn't happen to them, and that didn't happen to them. But each of us has our own story, and and um, sometimes when I'm at a, a convention, I hear my story from one of the speakers, and and it's it's a wonderful experience for me to to. Um, be able to sit back and listen to someone else that went through the same thing and has risen above us and, and that has such a good life today. So anyhow, I'll, I'll go back to um, the beginning. I, I don't remember anything under the age of 12. Um, why, I don't know, and I probably don't want to know. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, um, I, I did grow up in a coal mining area um, in southern Alberta, quite close to actually where Marty's living now. He's in Red Deer, and uh, this was about 70 miles um, southeast of where he is right now. And um, it, it was, everybody there was poor because the coal miners worked a bit in the winter and, and did nothing in the summer. And, and in the summer, the municipality would, um, which would be, I, I don't know if you call them municipalities here or not, but the, the area that uh, kind of governs the, the small area that you live in would supply cases of pork, canned meat to um, all the miners so that they could feed their families because the food was, was that scarce. All, all we had was um, that kind of meat and, and what, um, you know, we grew in our gardens and, and my mom canned. And my mom could cook that fork a million different ways and you never knew that you were eating the same thing every day. And I still love fork today. My kids would always would say to me growing up, how can you, how can you stand it? How can you eat it? And, and, um, I, I guess I'm just grateful that I have food to put in my mouth is, is what it comes down to. And, uh, of course, I, going to school, I always wore, rummage sale clothes, second-hand clothing, um, that the rich girls at school had passed down to me, and um, I didn't think a lot of these things bothered me uh, as I was growing up. Um, but I, I, when I started doing inventories and looking into um, a lot of things from my past, I realized that, you know, that had a big effect on my self-esteem. I think that's where where it first started um, that uh, I wasn't as good as other people and um, that's just in my mind of course and I think um, you know some of us know a little bit about uh, self-esteem when we get here and I was the second oldest of seven children and uh, we never had I was telling some people at breakfast this morning I was 16 years old before I talked on the telephone and I'm not that old. I turned 51 this July. So I mean, this, I'm not talking back in 1912 or something like that, you know. Uh, but I never talked on a phone until I was 16. I, until I left home at the age of 16 to go out and get a job, I never sat on a flush toilet. I never knew what it was. I never knew what running water was because we hauled all our water and, and, and feeded it and, and we were allowed to shower once a week at the, the coal miner's shower house. And that was a big deal, like the families would go in there, the mothers and all the kids, and, and it, it, was, it was an exciting time, you know. So, uh, my, my father, I adored my father. My dad, 
my dad was the light of my life. I, I, I have never, and this is no knock to Lou because I love Lou with all my heart, but I have never loved anyone in my life like I love my father. He was always there for me, always. And um, I, I'd lived for Saturdays because on Saturdays he was the, the miner that had the blasting papers and he'd go down and underground and do all the blasting for the, the miners for the following week. And, and um, if my homework was done and my chores were done and everything, I was able to go with him on Saturdays and help him plant the dynamite sticks in the hole to he drill them and everything. And, and um, that was that was the highlight of my life, being able to go down in the mines with my dad, you know. And and he was a hard worker, and and he drank on. He was a, a wino. He drank on Sunday. He, he'd get a half a gallon of wine that he could he could buy once a month, and that would last him for the four Sundays in the month. And um, I I don't I can't say if my dad in his later years was a drunk or not, because that's not my right. Uh, I like to believe that he wasn't, but deep inside I kind of had an idea that he could have been. You know, and, and when, when I was down in the mines, the one thing that I really think, thought about when I first came to AA was he would always say to me, when we, got, when we would go by, there was two mine shafts, so the mine went two miles down. And these horses pulled about a dozen cars behind and, and uh, he'd, he'd look up and he'd say, if anything should ever happen to me, you climb those stairs to that light at the top and you'll be okay and get help. And when I came to AA, it reminded me of that because it seems like when you first start doing the steps, that it's an impossible. I'd look up there when I was 12 years old and think, oh my God, I could never make it that far. How could I climb all those steps? And that's how I felt when I did step one, when I when I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I just thought, there's no way I can do all these steps. There's no way I can do what people are telling me I have to do. Um, I'm a little nervous, but I, I don't know if it's coming across in my voice or not, but my sponsor told me the first time that I was sharing at a meeting, and I said to her, I'm, I'm so nervous, I'm just shaking, and she says, that's good, that's God shaking the truth out of you. <laughs> so, and, and I, I truly believe that, uh, that, that, you know, is, is what was going on. Um, I, I, when I, I quit school halfway through grade 12, much to this dismay of my parents, because I was an excellent student, strictly because I knew if I was good in school, I'd go down in those lines. And uh, I don't know. I my my my. I can remember one of the few times that I saw my father cry, and, and that was one of the times when I quit school. I was I was it was January of grade twelve. I was sixteen years old, and I'd been offered a job at the hospital in the laundry room, and um, all I could see was I'm going to have my own money. It didn't matter that that was going to be probably the best job I'd have for the rest of my life. Having a dollar in my pocket meant so much to me because I, I had never had any money to do anything with. 
And I, when I got my first paycheck, I spent almost the whole check on a road seat to take home to my mom and dad because I knew that they hadn't had a taste of roast for about eight years. And, and it was just, it was, it was a rewarding experience, you know. Uh, we, we enjoyed it as a family. Uh, and, and, uh, my mom and dad gave me help spending my hard-earned money on a meal for the family, but, but they didn't understand what it did to me. Uh, after working for, oh, maybe a year in the hospital, I was offered a job as a waitress at the hotel cafe. And, uh, I, I took that and I worked two jobs for about two years and then I met the man that I would marry and, and remain married to for almost 24 years. And, uh, I didn't know. I thought he was the most wonderful person in the world, you know, because he was so jealous and he didn't want me around other people and he didn't want me to dance with anyone and he didn't want me to talk to men and he didn't want me to do this and that. And I thought, I thought it was wonderful, you know, always I'm going to have him just for me for my whole life. And, um, you know, I went through several years of, of, mental anguish and mental abuse because of it. Uh, we had two sons, um, one who's now 30 and one who just turned 27. And um, my husband worked out of town a lot. He was on the uh, work for the telephone company. And he was uh, had just left on a Monday morning to go out to Canmore, uh, up by down. And uh, he was going to be there for two weeks. And I walked my one son's kindergarten that morning, and I came home. And uh, my three-year-old son, I left him in the kitchen upstairs, and I went downstairs to start a load of laundry. And I turned around, and there was a man standing there, and he had a knife. And he raped me. And it took me a lot of years of drinking before I was able to face that because up to that point I wasn't a drinker. I I just I had I had drank a couple times but I knew what alcohol did for me. And uh that day I had a couple drinks and that night I had to get drunk before I could go to sleep. And it started a four year period of drinking every single day until I blacked out. I don't remember, I, I didn't have a lot of amends to make because I don't remember so much of what happened in my drinking because I was blacked out all the time. But I do know that I still functioned even though I was blacked out because I, I volunteered at the school and they were always phoning, could, could you please come in and, you know, we need someone to correct papers or to, to help with this, that, or the other thing. And um, I would go to the school and, and, and work, and I, I functioned, but I don't remember doing any of the, the things. I, I've been told um, by a lot of people what my actions were, and, and I remember the odd things early in the day, but um, anything that happened 
later in the day uh, is an absolute blank to me. I do know that I drove. I was fortunate enough that I never had an accident. I never had an a impaired driving charge. I never lost a job. Um, I never lost my husband or my children or uh, any of that. But I lived in a prison of my own because um, from the mental abuse, because my husband didn't understand why I was doing what I was doing, I, he started, he, he was a binge drinker, and every time he'd drink, he'd come home and beat the hell out of me. And I accepted it, because I believed in my heart that because I hadn't told anyone, because I hadn't fought this person, I hadn't tried to defend myself out of fear for my small child that was in the house for me. I don't think anybody can imagine what goes through a person's mind, the, the million thoughts that go through. What if he kills me and my kids have no one here? What if my son hears me and comes and he kills him? Uh, you know, and, and so the guilt started to, to build inside of me. And, um, it, 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 uh, it grew to a point where, uh, I, I could no longer myself anymore. I left my husband many times and he always promised that it would be better, it would never happen again. And I go back. And and then I grew into the whatever it is, battered wife syndrome or whatever they call it today. I I was there because I went back. Nobody came and told me that. You know, I just didn't know how to get out of the situation. And um on, on November 7th, um, 1979, I woke up in the morning. Up to that point, I had been drinking about a full 26 ounce plus a half of another 26 ounce a day. And I had bottles hidden all over the house. Like, I mean, they were in the soap box. They were under the bed. We had a, we had a water bed and I'd put them up in behind the little dividers there. And I mean, I just, I had, I had booze everywhere. In case someone found a bottle, I would never have to be without. And I got to the point where I couldn't be without because I shook so bad if I didn't drink during the night and first thing in the morning that, that it was un uncontrollable. And I tried to quit many, many times. And every time I would try to quit, a repairman would come and I'd have to write a check or something. And I couldn't, I'd like, I couldn't write the check. So I'd have to run downstairs and, and take about, uh, you know, eight ounces of straight vodka in order to calm myself enough so that I could write a check. And, and, uh, it, it just was impossible for me to quit on my own. But on November 7th, I don't remember um, looking up the number of detox centers, but I do remember um, going there. And uh, I had apparently called a neighbor and asked him if he would drive me down because I knew he was in the program. He, he, he wasn't active. I couldn't even say he was in the program. I knew he didn't drink. He went to Alcoholics Anonymous for years and then just quit going. And he didn't drink, and that's all that mattered to me. I needed someone that would understand what was happening to me. And um, I phoned Jim and asked him if him and his wife would drive me to detox. And I phoned my mother 
um, who lived about 110 miles away, and asked her if she would come and stay with my children. And uh, I didn't tell my husband that I was. He, he left for work that morning, and I didn't tell him that I was even thinking about going because I knew he would talk me out of it because if I sobered up, he was going to lose control of me. And uh, he couldn't have handled that uh, in my mind. So I went into detox and I stayed there for a full two weeks. I took so bad the first three days that I couldn't hold a straw to my mouth. And my doctor came in on the third day and he said, if you don't, if you can't hold anything on your stomach, stay. I'm going to have to give you something to calm you to, so that your stomach can accept, uh, you know, fluids and, and uh, food. And um, I forced myself. I forced myself to take, I heard someone talk last night about taking a drink and holding it there and holding it there until, you know, and then, you know, until it was able to go down. And uh, it wasn't, I don't think it was in the meeting here, it was someone that we were talking to. And that's what I did with water to try and get something into my system. And one thing that, um, that, Help me in detox is I saw a person take several alcoholic seizures and it scared the hell out of me. And I talked to my doctor about it and he said, Linda, you're that far. If you are so fortunate that it hasn't happened to you yet. And that's one thing I always, I, I, I never forget detox because I never, ever want to have to go back there. It, it, that's real important to me because I don't ever want to get back to where I was when I came to this program 18 years ago. Someone here this morning was, uh, Keith actually, he, he asked me if this is my natural color hair and, and uh, I said, yes, it is. And he says, that's good. I like people that have more gray hair than I do. And I've had a lot of, um, a lot of compliments on, a lot of people have come up to me this weekend and said, I like your haircut. And this haircut was not by choice when it started. I had hair like Dolly had last night, only quite a bit longer. And um, in 1990, a drunk driver hit me head on. And the, the motor of my car was sitting on the passenger seat in my vehicle. A three-quarter ton truck hit my little escort at doing 60 miles an hour. And I was in the hospital for a long time, and I had a lot of broken bones. And my collarbone was broken. Um, and, and I had six broken ribs and my hands were badly crushed. And I had like broken, you know, a couple of those little goodies too, but I couldn't raise my hands to, to comb my hair. And it bothered me and I, I had a nurse ask my, the hairdresser that I had been working for if she would come up and cut my hair. And I said, just do something with it that I don't have to worry about that someone can just run a comb through it in the morning and it's going to look okay. And that's what she did and I've had this same haircut for six years, seven years because I love it. it it's, it's too easy to go back to perms and curling and all that stuff. 
So, and I'm, I'm going to talk this morning a whole lot about the things that kept me sober when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And that was a little four-letter word, H-U-D-S. When I first came into the program, before I went to detox, I had gone to several meetings. And there was a couple there that uh, are called the mother and dad of AA in that area because they were such old-timers. And uh, I'd go to meetings after I'd been drinking. And I'm not proud to say that. I don't recommend it to anyone. But it's my story. And I went to the meetings, and I get there, and I knew that I couldn't be here. And Fred and Lydia would say to me, they'd hug me. They would always give me a hug. And they'd say, Linda, take a seat at the back, and if they ask you to share, you say, my name's Linda, I'm an alcoholic, and I have nothing to say to thank you. And I did that for quite a few months. And they told me, one day, you're going to see something here that's going to make you want to stay sober. And gradually, as I listened to people and watched people, I, I got to that point where I wanted to be talked and I wanted to stay sober. Now, those two people, if it weren't for them, and their hugs and their kindness to me, uh, honest to God, I don't think that I would be sober today because they made me feel like I belonged somewhere and that, that they loved me and cared about me and, and it was, it was just a great feeling. And I always look at the H in, in hugs as the hope. If I hadn't had hope when I first arrived here, I wouldn't have stayed. There would have been nothing for me. If I didn't believe that there was something for me further on, I couldn't have stayed. I had to have that hope that I could change, that, that people would really genuinely care for me, and better yet, that I would start to care for other people. That maybe I could have a friend, that I didn't have to sit by myself and drink alone and, and not be able to float in crowds and, and uh, or to parties or, or anywhere, because I belong somewhere. And those people, I'll tell you, they, they really, they really kept me from going back out. When I thought, when I got my first sponsor in AA, I haven't had, I, I, it's wonderful to hear someone like Peggy that has a sponsor for a long, 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 long time. I did, have a sponsor in Calvin. My, my first sponsor, I told her to go, you know where, um, after she started making very strong suggestions about what I had to do. And I, I just told her that nobody's telling me what I have to do, and I told her that she could go her way and I would go mine, in not quite too nice terms. And I, uh, I found myself another sponsor that was real easy on me and that didn't uh, tell me that I should work the steps and attend meetings and uh, read the book, read the literature, associate with people in the program. And uh, 
Very soon, my mental attitude started to, to backslide. And I went back to Margaret, and I asked her if she would be my sponsor again. And that was one of my real humbling experiences in this program. And, and that's also the eight things because it, 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 for me, the humility part of the program. I, I, my, I, my very first lesson that I remember in humility was, um, our family was very close to another family, um, when I was growing up. And when I was 14 years old, just before Christmas, their house burnt down, and the mother and the three daughters burnt to death in the fire. And we were getting ready the following week to go to the funeral. And I was throwing a tantrum because I had nothing to wear. And my dad called me aside and he said, Honey, if you're going to that funeral to show people what you have to wear, you're going for the wrong reason. You better stay home. And that didn't mean much to me then, but by God it means a lot to me today. Because today, humility for me is, is so essential in this program. Um, humil- true humility is not thinking less of my, or not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. And, and, you know, it's, it helps. When you get out of yourself, the self-centeredness, the selfishness, when you can get out of yourself and be willing to try and help other people, uh, it is such a rewarding experience. And once the, the, the hope and the, you know, all came to steps one, two, and three, uh, when I came to step three and, the, and, and uh, realized that um, at that time I thought step three said that I turned my will and my life over to God. And that's not what it says. It says I turned my will and my life over to the care of God. So that meant for me and still does today that when I have a situation that I can't handle, I can turn it over to God for today. I turn my will and my life over to Him every single morning. And during the day, many times I take it back. Many times. And, and if I didn't, I don't think I'd be human. But um, I turn it over to his care. And that means that he's going to help me through any given situation. And once it's something that I can handle on my own, he's going to turn it back to me and let me do the work. But I have to be willing to ask for the help. So, you know, step three was, was a biggie, as were all the other ones. And then um, I started to understand myself and other people after I had done step four and five. Because until I had done an inventory on myself, I had no idea what was wrong with me. And it came down to basically fear. Everything in my life was fear based. And um, I was telling, uh, at my case about two years ago, I, I was um, talking about how I still, when I, if Lou's not home, if I walk into the house by myself at night and it's dark, I check every closet, I check under the bed, 
I checked every little corner that anyone could be hiding. And this swap and this uh, fellow that, that Louis sponsored, he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, is that where she hides? Yeah. <laughs> but I really, I, I, that, that fear will always be with me. When I'm out walking, I, I, if someone's walking close behind me, the fear sets in, the fear takes, it, it consumes me. And I'd be a damn liar to say that I, I have no fear. Because I do. I really do. And, and, um, for me, it, it's justifiable. I don't ever want to have myself in a situation again where, where I'm not aware of what's going on around me. Um, when, some of my first meetings uh, that I went to at AA, uh, the first time I felt like I really had something to say, like, uh, and this was about five months into the program, and, and I felt like, gosh, I, I got something that I really would like to talk about tonight, and I talked for the first time. And I, I thought, I felt good because it had relieved me of something that I wanted to talk about. And after the meeting, an old timer came up to me and he said, and hey, you've got something worthwhile to say. Keep your mouth shut at meetings. And I held a resentment against that guy for years. Because I, I couldn't talk. I, my self-esteem was just coming back up to a level where I felt that what I had to say, if it was important for me, it was important enough for me to say. And, and he put me right back down there to square one. And it was about a year before I spoke at a meeting again. Out of fear that someone else was going to say the same thing to me. You know, when, when, uh, we talk about turning our, our well and our life over to the care of God, I was reading a little, uh, Lucas, these little books called Bits and Pieces, and I, I don't know if they're from the horse racing industry or not, but they have little horses on the front, and, and last week I was reading through one, and, and there's a, a little joke in there, and it's, uh, this atheist is out fishing, and uh, all of a sudden the Loch Ness Monster comes up from under the ocean and throws the boat in the air, and, and this Bella's hollers, God, please help me. And this voice comes thundering out of the clouds, but you don't believe in me. And he says, come on, get real. I didn't believe in the Loch Ness Monster either. <laughs> so, I, I, I thought that was kind of a cute little, little thing. But uh, I found out in my sobriety that, that I can do anything that that I put my mind to do. When when I I haven't I haven't done a lot of speaking. I you know, it's it's just something that's relatively new for me and and it's a rewarding experience. I, I enjoy it so much because today I can stand up here and I can look out at everybody there and I can look you in the eye. And that's something that I couldn't do for a lot of years. I, I had to walk with my head down because I didn't want people to see who I thought I was. And that's what it comes down to, is who I thought I was. And, and that's what, um, what made me drink. 
I went to Australia and New Zealand. My, my father passed away in 1985. And when he died, if there were ever a time in my sobriety that I would have thought of drinking, that would have been it. But the thought didn't cross my mind because I knew what he thought of me for staying sober and for what I had done with my life and how it had changed. And when I went to Australia in um, 1990, uh, I went up to Central Australia and, and I was telling some of the people here that I went and lived with the for four days with the Aboriginals and I ate the wickedy grubs and the berries and all the things that they do, you know, like they, uh, and, and if I had questions, I have to ask, and I wanted to know how they bathe, because they're in the desert and there was no water, and how they wash their hair, and they do everything with sand, because the sand absorbs the oil, and, and with the oil, any, any dirt comes off the skin. And, and, you know, it was, it was a, a real rewarding experience for me, and then I went to Central Australia, and I climbed Ayers Rock, and I don't know if any of you have seen a picture or have seen Ayers Rock, but it's the most magnificent rock that you'll ever see, and it's right out in the middle of the desert. And I remember when I was younger, and I, in a National Geographic magazine, I had seen a picture of this rock, and I said to my dad, someday I'm going to go see that rock. And I think in his mind, he didn't think that I would ever get there. And I climbed the rock all the way to the top. It was plus 41 that day, which is in 120 degrees range. One other fellow and I were the only two out of everyone there that day that made it to the top. And when I got up there, I just looked up and I said, Dad, I made it. And I know that he guided me up there. And I know if he could have been sitting in the room talking to me, he would have said, honey, if you're as stubborn as you always were your whole life, I don't, I wouldn't have had a doubt in my mind that you could make it. And then I looked down this rock, and there's not a bush, there's not a blade of grass, there's absolutely nothing to hold on to. If you slip, you're gone. It's as simple as that. And there's areas where you have to pull yourself on chains because, uh, the rock is that steep. And when I got back to the bottom, I got a signed certificate saying that I had climbed Ayers Rock right to the top. And and I, I talked to people in Australia that said they climbed the rock, and I said, oh, did you sign the book at the top? What book? I you weren't to the top of the rock. <laughs> so it was it was a, a one of the rewards that has come to me through sobriety. If I was still drinking, I would have never got to Australia, let alone had the opportunity to climb that rock. And when I came back down to the bottom, they took me around to a little in Cajun uh, area of this rock. And there were at that time about 14 plaques on there with the names of people that had died climbing that rock, that had fallen, some that had, had a heart attack because they they got up there and most of it for the people that fell with cockiness and, and being too sure of themselves and, and maybe not having faith and asking God for help to get back down. 
because that's what I had to do. I, I knew that I couldn't do it on my own. I, I had to have that help. And I got back down and I went to New Zealand. And I did something else that I'd wanted to do my whole life. I did a bungee jump. <laughs> if you haven't done one of them, you're not missing too much. <laughs> no, seriously, it's a it's a great experience. But uh, I had uh, one one slight little problem where I went. Uh, uh, I contacted a pen pal that I'd been writing since I was in junior high school, and. Uh, he met me at the airport, and he and his daughter took me all over the South Island of New Zealand. And we got down to Queenstown, and on the way to Queenstown, uh, I saw this monkey bridge. And uh, I said to them, this is something that I've always wanted to do, and they thought I was crazy. And I said, only one thing I have to do first, I need to go to a drugstore. And he says, why? And I says, uh, because there's a river down below there, and uh, if I lose my teeth, I've still got six weeks of a holiday to go, and I'm not gumming it the whole way. <laughs> so I had to go and get some polygrip, and I put that on my teeth, and it was about three days before I got them out again. <laughs> but it was worth it. It was... <laughs> I love Liz's laugh. <laughs> so that was that was one of my um, other experiences, I could say. Um, my husband, who had uh, been, I don't know, I don't like to blame him for anything that I went through. I really don't. Number one, he's not here any longer to defend himself. And number two, I know now that if it were a situation that were that unbearable, I would have found a way out. It was because of how I felt about myself that I was willing to stay in that situation. And he, the year after my dad died, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in an 18 months. He died. And he was in an extended care hospital that whole time and, and cause he lost the, the use of his legs and his bowel and bladder and everything kind of just all at once. And uh, we lived out on an acreage and, and the handy bus wouldn't travel out there to take him in for doctor appointments or do anything. And, and my doctor told me, he knew my whole history, and he said to me, Linda, if you keep him at home, you're going to have such a resentment, you'll probably kill him. He said, I don't care how much sobriety you have. You will have to be with him 24 hours a day. And every time you're doing something for him, you're going to be thinking back to what he did to you. And he convinced me to put him in a extended care hospital. And I did, and I'm grateful for that because I was able to go every day after work and I would help feed him and put him to bed at night. And, and Friends would say to me, you know, it's your opportunity. You're not tied to him. Why don't you leave him? And AA taught me something about forgiveness and about how anger is going to cause more resentment and could send me back out drinking. And he, he mentally he changed 
a hundred percent around and, and didn't know who he was a lot of the time or who I was. The last couple of months when I would go up, he, I'd say, who am I? And he'd say, well, you'd be either the nurse or my wife because they're the two that take care of me. And he didn't know who I was and he didn't know who our son. And, uh, it was a difficult time, but I wouldn't have passed that time up for anything in the world. Because in that 18 months, I went back in my heart to feeling the way I did 24 years previous when we were married. And I learned something about procrastination. Because, uh, on our 20th anniversary, we had talked, when we got married, we decided for our 25th anniversary, we set aside in the beginning just maybe a dollar a week or whatever we could afford and it got a little more as uh, things got better for us and as the kids got older. And we were going to take a trip to Australia and New Zealand. We were going to have a cruise first and take this trip. And on our 20th anniversary, he said, should we do it now? And I said to him, no, you know, we planned this for our 25th, let's wait for our 25th. And he died on our 24th. So I don't procrastinate anymore. If I have something to do, I like to do it. You know, get it over with. I don't give a care if it's talking to my sponsor about something I don't want to talk about, if it's doing another fifth step or fourth step or, or whatever. Uh, dealing with my children. I was telling Tim this morning that um, I have one son that hasn't talked to me for six years since I moved, since I met Lou and moved to BC. And he's in his addiction. And, and I have to try to let that go. And I'd be a damn liar if I stood here and told you that I can't, can let it go. I can't. Totally. But it doesn't run my life anymore. But I still care what he does, and I care about him, and I, you know, and, and the, the younger son who's 27, he, he's, um, in and out of a program. He's, he's been in stress and into alcohol, and I, I realize now that the one thing I did for both of my sons was taught them that it's okay to slap women around by staying in that situation. They've both done six months in jail for slapping a girlfriend. And I'm kind of grateful for that, you know, because through, through that, maybe they've learned that that's not okay to, to slap someone around or beat them up or whatever. It's not okay to assault anyone. It doesn't matter who it is. My, uh, I, I was able to take my mother on this cruise, the cruise part of the vacation. On, I went on my 25th anniversary, and I took the cruise, and I took my mom, and because my mom had never, she'd done everything for everyone her whole life. She was the most giving person that you'd want to meet, and I wanted her to be able to do something that she could enjoy without having to worry about a financial burden or anything. And, and fortunately, I, I was able to do it for her. And I remember when I went to her and I said, I brought a ticket, we're going on a cruise, I want to take you with me. And she said, I can't let you do that. And I said, well, I'll take someone else. 
And she said, well, well, oh, well, well, if you're going to take someone else, I'll go. <laughs> so, anyhow, we, we had such a wonderful, wonderful vacation together. And she stayed in Australia with me for uh, 12 days. And then she came back home and I did a full tour of Australia, New Zealand, and Fiji. And the August before that, I had been in... Uh, well, I'd been in Cranbrook the summer before. I had a cousin there that was having a lot of trouble with drinking and drugs. And I thought if I can get him to a convention, uh, maybe he's going to hear something. And I phoned him and I said, can you stay sober for a day so that I can take you to this convention and, you know, you'll meet some people that you're going to love. And, and he says, uh, he could do it. And I was supposed to be going to a birthday party of a neighbor in Calgary, and I, I went and told them that I wouldn't be there. I was going to Cranbrook, British Columbia, for this roundup. And Lou, the speaker that was supposed to be there, had canceled, and they called and asked Lou if he would be a replacement. And he ended up as the speaker there. And when he was done speaking, I went up and I gave him a hug, and I said to him, uh, I, I enjoyed your talk. And, and he said, uh, he handed me a card with his name and address and everything on it. And about three months later, I wrote him a letter because I listened to his tape over and over. And it helped me in so many areas of my life that I wanted to thank him. So I, I sent him a letter. And he called me the night he got this letter. And he says, um, I wrote in the letter, I says, I don't know if you're married or anything. If you are, please don't let this, anyone think that this is more than just a thank you, because sincerely, that's all it was. And he phoned me that night, and he said, I'm not married, I'm not dating, I'm not doing anything, and I love getting letters, so keep writing. And I kept writing, and he I kept writing, and he kept phoning. Every time he'd get a letter, he phoned me. So he was the one with the $700 a month phone bills, and I had about 25 a month on postage stamps. <laughs> Worked great for me. And when I, when I went on this uh, cruise and this, this trip, um, Lou was in Calgary to meet me at the airport when I came back. I had written him on the trip very frequently, and, and I didn't even know if he was receiving the letters or would be interested or whatever. And, and I, I wrote in one letter, it would be really nice if you could be in Calgary to meet my plane when I come home. And, and I walked out and he was there with one of my sons to meet me. That was wonderful. Not very long after that, he came to visit again and he brought me a diamond ring and proposed to me. And I moved to British Columbia and, uh, the rest is history. <laughs> we lived together for from June until October. I to make sure that I was the gifts that I was getting were going to be okay. <laughs> and uh, we we were married in October 27th, but in 1991, and and we just celebrated our sixth wedding anniversary, and and every year has gotten better and and that's because of the love we share we don't we try to help each other work out anything that's happening we don't 
we disagree about things, but we don't argue and fight because it doesn't get anyone anywhere. All it does is get someone angry, someone that wants to kill the other one or whatever. <laughs> and uh, so we we are able through through the program and and learning about ourselves. We're we're able to sit down and talk about things without the anger coming up. And, and uh, you know, it's it's great. I don't know how I'm doing for time here, but. Um, uh, I, I want to for sure touch on one other thing. Um, in July, the year I turned 50, uh, Lou threw a big birthday party for me, and it was a surprise. I didn't know a thing about it. And the day of my birthday, I got a letter from my mom. And uh, this is so hard for me to talk about. She wrote in that letter, from when I was born and how he, he said I was so hurt when your dad came into the hospital room and he saw you there and you were so jaundiced and they had put this brown stuff in your eyes and you had rubbed it all over and he looked at me and he said, oh my God, it's, this kid must belong to Joe Lewis. <laughs> and my mom was heartbroken. She was just, she said, I thought all my babies were beautiful. It didn't matter what they looked like, you know. And uh, so anyhow, my dad, uh, it, it wasn't sent, it sent to a sense of humor either. Apparently he was quite serious about the whole thing. But uh, she wrote my whole life from the time I was a, a little girl and, and the mischievous and things I did. I was very much like Peggy. I, I take snakes to school and put them in the desk of the boys. And then when they'd open up the lid, these snakes would be crawling around. And I love doing little things like that. And when Peggy was talking last night, I thought, hmm, someone else just as mischievous as I was, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, she wrote uh, about what I had gone through and, and how I had risen above everything and how I no longer was a victim, a rape victim. I went to counseling, and if anybody needs outside counseling, there's nothing wrong with that. Because I was sober four years before my sponsor finally told me, if, if you don't talk about whatever it is that's bothering you, you're going to drink again. And she said, if you need outside help, go get it. And I told her what had happened, and she helped me to find a sex abuse counselor and um, I went for quite a while and and um, gradually I quit being the victim and I became the survivor and it's a wonderful feeling today we had a young girl that was um, sexually molested thrown in the river to drown after about a year ago and you know I, I just thought to myself but for the grace of God for life you know it could have been me but for some reason, I was allowed to survive. I've, I've had three incidents in my life where, where I shouldn't be here. I had the car accident where if you saw the pictures of my car, you wouldn't, you'd have no idea how I came out of that accident alive. You couldn't even tell it's a car. And then Lou and I were in Mexico on a vacation uh, three years ago, and I made the stupid mistake of turning my back to the ocean and a wave came in and it caught me and just threw me around 
There was a lifeguard on the beach, and Lou was hollering at him, can you do something? And he says, I can't. If I go out there, I'll be dead, too. They thought that I wouldn't survive it. Lou, Lou says there was arms. He didn't know I had so many arms. He went through flying every which direction he could imagine. And the only thing that happened, I couldn't stand up. My bathing suit was so full of sand that <laughs> I looked like I was uh, about ready to have my next little child. But you know, one thing my sponsor told me when I first came to the program, she said to me, Linda, I don't want you ever to say that you'll try. I want you to say you'll do it. Because if you say you'll try, you're going to expect results without putting in the effort. But if you say you'll do it, you're going to put in the effort and you're going to get the results. And it's so true. You know, it happens for me. It can happen for anyone here. As I said in the beginning, if you're new, for God's sake, if I could ever say anything to you, say, your life can't do anything but get better. They, I, I've got the promises in the book. I've, I'm happy. I'm joyous. And I'm free. Uh, freedom from bondage is, is my favorite story. Lou put me on to that. We spoke at a prison last Christmas, and that was, for me, the ultimate experience in AA, because I talked about how my sons were treating me, and how so many things had happened in my life, and how I thought that I would never speak at a prison, because I had every person in prison grouped into this little bunny, that they're all one as bad as the other. And you know, when I, when I got to know some of these guys, we went to Monday night meetings after, and there's not one bit different than me. The only difference is a lot of them are in there for, uh, vehicular homicide. They, they were driving and drinking and killed someone. It didn't happen to me. I was so lucky. I'm just so grateful. I, I, I truly want to thank everybody here. Um, Liz got me here to speak blind. She had never heard me. I've never had a tape done of my speaking. I, I, I was so unsure of, of um, whether I could talk for an hour the first time, and Lou encouraged me. And he says, Linda, you can do anything that you want to do. Anything. And he, he just, I can't tell you how much I love this man and what he means to me. I'll just finish by, by saying that the, the G in that word, hug, has meant to me growth and gratitude. And the S was my sobriety, and today I have serenity. So that word, hug, at my home group, it's called Making Changes. And it's the best group in the world. <laughs> and I stand at the door and I hug everybody that comes through that door. I don't care who it is. Some of them push me away because they're dirty. They just come from work wherever. I, I don't care. That hug could be the thing that'll keep that person there. So anyhow, thanks everybody. It's, it's good to, to see all, you know, these friendly, smiling faces. It's my first trip to Cincinnati, and I love it. I love you people, and I want to thank you.